0: What a young person, in my opinion, needs to do is figure out what their superpower is and then capitalize on that. And you probably have a built-in kryptonite.
1: (laughs) Welcome to Pictures Up, the podcast where we discuss careers in filmmaking. Today I'm speaking with George Kozak, who's been involved with the picture vehicle aspect of filmmaking. We actually met several years ago on a film called Old Fashioned, where he was the vehicle handler and uh, furnished a classic Rolls Royce for that film. Since then he's been involved in several more projects, including Acts of Violence, starring Bruce Willis, and also The Fate of the Furious, which of course is part of the Fast and the Furious franchise. One of the things that I think is really interesting about the interview that I had with George is he's actually semi-retired now, and so he has this whole life story and career path that he can share with us. I think for those of us that are younger or even just starting a career, it's really interesting to see how life unfolds and see how things really kind of change over time. It has not been part of his lifelong desire to be involved with filmmaking. It's something that came relatively recently and uh, later in his career, but it still connected a lifelong passion of his with something to connect with vocation. There's a lot in here for filmmakers and really anybody who's just interested in charting a career path, because I think there's some really valuable lessons in here. Even though George may be less involved with filmmaking than some, he is 100% on track as far as being able to give good advice for people who are on a career journey. So let's go ahead and get to it. Could you give us sort of? um, It sounds awfully dramatic to say sort of your life story, but what's your like? What's your work experience? What's your skill set? What kind of work are do you tend to be drawn to?
0: I tend to be drawn to um work that involves using my my hands mm-hmm. okay. um, <laughs> i I could not be a programmer okay. even though I've been in the computer field for thirty years I could not do uh I could not sit at a keyboard for eight hours a day or whatever. I have to have a screwdriver or something yeah. Um, I I've always been curious uh, about how things work. I've always wanted to see the inside of something. From an early age, I would look at things and try to figure out how they how they worked. You know, from wondering about a toilet when I was four years old to <laughs> you know wondering how they get a driveway to look that way. Um, yeah, anything that I see, I try to try to figure it out. So did you take things apart a lot as a kid? Yes. Yeah. yeah. And um and not so much to to just take them apart and then throw them away. I would want to be able to take them apart and put them back together. Right, which are very different things. <laughs> right. But putting it back together. Is so <laughs> yeah, a lot, a lot of my a lot of my toys uh Christmas toys were some sort of um, construction type uh, or destruction construction mm-hmm. toy. Uh, my favorite was Mr. Machine. And that may have gotten me interested in watches later in life because mm. the inside of a Mr. Machine was a watch. You know? Oh, interesting. Huh. You wind it up. You, it had a mainspring. It had gears. You had to put them in the right order. And um, I, as a 12-year-old, I prided myself in being able to take that down to to bits and then put it all back together and it would work. And hmm.
1: Yeah. That's a good feeling.
0: Yeah. When Very it, much so. When
1: it, yeah. We're we're doing this interview here in this bus that I worked on and I, you know, I remember the first time I turned on the sink and water came out. You know, that's like, that's pretty cool. I did that. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> and it's not leaking anywhere else. <laughs> uh yeah yeah um obviously you from very early on you had a sort of a focus or a direction uh, or an area of fascination uh
0: how did that transition into
1: like uh work experience
0: our family um was a ford family early on my dad worked at ford and i got interested in cars early on and um as a 13-year-old, I, I carried pictures of engines in my wallet. Oh wow! <laughs> was, uh, I was very much into uh, power production and uh, how to. Uh, and it was the golden age of uh, muscle cars. Okay. In the from '62 to you know to 1970, uh, big engines and big power was was the way to go. I always wanted to have a race car, and uh, always wanted to modify an engine to make it better right unfortunately I would try a modification and make things worse and that was a learning experience for both my dad and I (laughs) because I would usually modify his car oh and and that uh, that would be bad but um, all in uh, in the end um, when I turned 18 I was able to work at Ford and got a Position through my dad for the summer, and uh, and I worked in the summers uh, through college, and then uh, afterwards actually got a job at Ford, and uh, that was in an en- <clears throat> that was in an engine plant. Excuse
1: me. So, uh, what's it like to work in an engine plant? Like, what are you, what are you, what are you actually doing? What's a day like there?
0: In those days, uh, which would be the late sixties, uh, a day in the life on the assembly line. For an engine assembly line was doing the same operation, whatever it was, putting two nuts on a bolt, on bolts, uh, torquing something, you would do that three times a minute all day long with no stopping, with no, uh, you would get breaks, but your job would be just that small bit of the process all day long. So. You would tend to lose yourself in um, thought. Yeah, I would think. And do the operation automatically, and hours would go by, and um, you wouldn't be um, even aware of the time passing sometimes. And so I would take things apart in my head and put them back together and modify things and dream about you know, having my own house and just, uh, you know, going on trips and I did all these things while I was sitting on the assembly line doing the same thing three times a minute. (laughs) Wow. So you,
1: uh, we talked a little bit yesterday, you did have sort of of a trajectory there. That's not what you did all the time. What was your basic, uh, like your whole time at Ford wasn't putting uh, two nuts on a bolt. What, uh, wh- where did that eventually grow to, and then eventually you transitioned into something else?
0: Yes, every every summer I got put into different positions, uh, and and there were three plants, uh, two engine plants and a foundry, and I worked in all three over the uh, over that time period. And um, it depended on where people were needed as to where I would end up. So I worked in the piston department one year, and I worked uh, on the piston hookup where they put the pistons in the engine. another year, I, I um, worked in the foundry um, in the uh, core room most of the time, one day on the molding line, which was a nightmare. <laughs> um, what made the foundry uh, a nightmare? Mm-hmm. The, um, the first day I was in the foundry, I was supposed to work in a clean, cool area of the foundry called the core room. The core room is where they make the uh, insides of the molds that make the different pieces for the engine. Um, But that day when I arrived, the um, foreman told me that he had no job for me in the core room and he was going to loan me out for the day. But I would be back the next day. So I uh, was taken to the new area of the plant, which turned out to be the hottest darkest dingiest dirtiest <laughs> part where they pour the metal the liquid metal into the molds and they wouldn't give me a a jumpsuit they wouldn't give me a overalls because i was only going to be there a day so i had to work in my nice clothes in this horrible place <laughs> <laughs> and it was it was noisy and hot and um I uh, ruined my shirt and uh, my pants, and, and they said, uh, sorry, you won't be here tomorrow, and I said, thank God I won't be here. <laughs> <laughs> that was something. But I got close to that um, process, uh, close to how they make engines from molten metal. It was pretty amazing in retrospect.
1: Yeah, it makes me realize I'm glad I don't work in a foundry. Um. <laughs>
0: Not in those days. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Working in the engine plant, uh, gave me an appreciation of how many parts go into making a an engine. My favorite part of the engine plant was Hot Test. Uh, hot Test was the place where they lined the engines up, hooked up uh, fuel to them, and started them up for the first time. And uh, to this day I have an excitement about <clears throat> putting things together and seeing them work. Yeah. whether whether it's a an amplifier or or a uh, watch or whatever you see it in all its parts you see it being put together and you and and uh and then in the end it comes to life and and that stuck with me my whole life
1: hot testing is where they actually test the motors yeah, to see the they engines. actually run sure yeah, yeah they, which every
0: is, one of them gets gets run which i guess would be important and it it always amazed me at how quickly they started up for the first time. You know, it's, really, it's like smacking the baby, and it, it's 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 really uh, really quite a sight. And uh, to see seventy engines all lined up in a row, all running, and uh, for the first time, hmm. um, yeah, taking their first breaths. Yeah, how
1: do they get fuel to them when they're bench running them?
0: Uh, they just there's um, fuel lines that hang from the. Uh, Test cell that they sit on. I see. Um, when the engines are new, uh, empty. When the engine block is empty, that they're bolted to a, a hanger system, which carries the engine all the way through the plant, and uh, all the parts are put onto that. And when they get to the end, which is hot test, they line up on their on the same hangers they were on back at the beginning, and uh, when they run then they're unbolted and put on uh carriers to be taken wherever they're going to be put into cars are there mufflers on them
1: like it, this must have been no. incredibly loud yeah
0: yeah they um actually they have um clamp on pipes that w- oh, would okay. clamp onto the two exhaust manifolds and the there was no starter or transmission on them or anything so they they were started by a pneumatic gun which would uh Connect to the front. To the flywheel? To shaft. Okay. To the, to the, to the, um, yeah. Oh, oh the to, to, to the harmonic balancer. Right. Yeah. Yeah, that bolt there. They would just stick that in there, step on a button, and that would turn them over, and uh, away they would go. Hmm. They, How did they keep from getting asphyxiated from the exhaust? Well, that area w- had the Those best open air. ventilation. <laughs> <laughs> I yeah, see. It had huge fans drawn all that away. Hmm. That was during the muscle car era, and this the plant I worked in, Cleveland Engine Plant Number 1, was uh, the location where the Boss 302 was built, and uh, when those engines would make it to hot test, the pipes, the manifolds wouldn't hook up to the engine, so they had okay. to run them with open headers, and they were loud engines to begin with, so <laughs> that was exciting to see... Uh, four or five of them lined up all running, uh, like it sounded like a drag strip, you know Okay, yeah <laughs> Kind of like, uh, race cars bunch of race cars idling Right. But yeah, that, that was exciting Because I mean. that's basically
1: kind of what it was, right? right? I mean, yeah Yeah, it was a race motor.
0: Yeah. Effectively
1: Yeah, wow How'd you leave Ford and what like, what'd you do next?
0: Well, um this, um Leaving Ford was um, not my choice. I thought about it, but um, an external event uh, forced my hand, Okay, and that was a big traffic accident. Oh, wow. Um, my first wife and I were in a, uh, were in a big car accident uh, out west on, uh, in Gallup, New Mexico on our way to California, we were taking a a ride cross-country. And um, she was driving, and she pulled out in front of a a semi-truck and uh, destroyed the car. Uh, She uh, died of her injuries, and Mm. I was alone and and, uh, ended up uh, being out of work for a year. Mm. Uh, And during that time... Um, I had broken bones and uh, other injuries and uh, during that time I had time to think about what uh, did I really want to go back to uh, Ford Hmm. and um, I know we mentioned that uh, everybody that worked at Ford loved it and hated it at the same time because they they were getting paid so well that it was too good to leave but they wanted to leave. (laughs) (laughs) Hmm. So this was my chance, and at the end of the year when I was supposed to go back to work, um, I quit. And um, at that time, computers were becoming big, and there were advertisements on TV and radio about uh, Control Data Institute. Um, A phone call will change your life. And Hmm. I called them, and there was a school not too far from my house and i went to a 6 month um uh crash course in computer repair and um i figured if i was going to make this worth my while i would have to be the best yeah and i ended up being uh the first in the class and i was hired out of uh, out of class and sent to uh the washington dc area so with Control Data Corporation. Okay. So that's how I got into big systems, uh, uh, computer repair.
1: Control Data Corporation, that's a company. Yes. Yeah. CDC. And and was it, now what was the school that you went to?
0: Control Data Institute. So were they the same? It was like a company school. So they
1: hired you out of their training program. Right. Okay. They used that school. That's a compliment.
0: Yeah. They used that school to to, uh, recruit I see. You paid for your schooling, and they got to pick who they were going to hire. I see. So th- they they hired the top three in the class, and we all went to Washington. Um, <clears throat> I lived in Maryland, uh, right outside of the Beltway. And what they wanted was people to work at the National Security Agency, NSA. Oh, wow. So we were all put in for top-secret clearances. And... Um, that sounds exciting. And that was exciting, yeah, yeah to be investigated, I guess. <laughs> yeah. At, at, um, yeah at, at 27 years old, getting in, uh, involved in that. And um, while, um, while I was um, in that um, program waiting for my clearance, uh, I worked in other installations. And um, and made a name for myself as a repairman, to the point where when I actually did get the clearance eighteen months later, my boss didn't want to let me go. Okay, (laughs) so I never worked at NSA. Oh, interesting. But I got. I but you did get the clearance. clearance. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I went there one. I went went there a couple times, and it's an amazing, uh, it's an amazing place. But um, yeah, I never had to work there, and. um, that's uh, I ended up working at uh, a, a, lo- a place on New Hampshire Avenue called uh, the Naval Ordnance Lab. And uh, that's actually where m- my wife and I met. Mm. But w- at that time, we were married to different people. Oh, okay. <laughs> I was married to my second wife and okay. her to her first husband. So we knew each other a uh, f- uh, long time ago. And then we just went our separate ways after uh, after I moved back to Cleveland. Oh, that's, interesting. That's moving the story down the road a little bit. But uh, so
1: so you got this job working in computers, right? And where did that? It didn't take you to the NSA. Where uh, where did that where did that go next?
0: Um, I wanted I wanted to go. Actually, my second wife wanted to go to Florida mm. or go back to Cleveland. She wasn't. She wasn't happy in the uh, Washington area and I didn't really ma- didn't matter to me. Right. So I looked into quitting and, and going with uh, a different company. Harris Computer I, I actually looked into and we were gonna move to Fort Lauderdale. But my boss said, How about if we move you back to Cleveland to keep you in the control data I see organization? Right.
1: <clears throat> and so they wanted to keep you on as an employee and yes. figured, well, if we, can, if we can help you out with location, you know, right. can you stay? Yeah. Right,
0: exactly. And there was an opening in Cleveland at, um, at Standard Oil, Ohio. Okay. So Standard Oil had a big computer complex uh, downtown Cleveland. So they moved me back to Cleveland, and um, then I worked with Standard Oil uh worked with their uh, computer uh, systems, which they had two big two big machines. One of them was the biggest in the world. One of the machines was hmm. a thing called a Cyber 205, and that was exciting to work on the leading edge of all computing. So how big was the
1: biggest computer in the world at that point?
0: Um, probably, probably 25 feet by 20 feet. Wow, I mean, it, it was a huge thing.
1: <laughs> yeah,
0: used a lot of power. Yeah, used a lot of uh, cooling, like elect- a uh, lot of uh, refrigeration. It was cu- quite a quite a monster, and we got quite an education working on it. And uh, those machines required so much uh, care that you were always uh, doing something with them, right. which was right up my alley. Maintenance I, intensive. Yeah. I had to use a screwdriver. <laughs> right. <laughs> I had to open the hood, yeah,
1: yeah okay so so you came back to Cleveland, and then um, you were working maintaining uh would this term be correct mainframe computers, yes, that is okay. the mainframe yeah. okay uh, and then, um, how long did that last for, and where
0: did you where did you transition from then came back in um I was in Washington almost five years, okay. And then, um, and when was that? Was that the sixties or seventies? The seventies, okay. nineteen seventy-six to okay. nineteen eighty-one. Eighty-one. Yeah. Okay. And um, and I stayed with Control Data almost ten years. Okay, but so, so nearly a decade. Nearly a decade with them, and I was getting. Um, antsy about becoming a supervisor. I, I wanted to become an engineer in charge and not just be a customer engineer. Okay. And it became obvious that Control Data wasn't gonna promote me. Mm. So um, a friend of mine, which who was actually my boss in Washington, okay. he quit Control Data and went with Cray Research. And he called me and he said, there was an opening in Cleveland for an engineer in charge at NASA Lewis Research Center for Cray. Oh, wow. And it was the only job in Ohio that I was qualified for. <laughs> and, but, but a specialized job. Yeah, yeah. right. And, and it happened to be in Cleveland. Yeah. So, so l- let me see
1: if I hear this correctly. Yeah. Your, your, your boss at Control Data left the company and joined cray right and then when he had an opening he thought of you right yeah so well, that's a good
0: situation and he called from washington yeah. and he said he remembered me He said that he knew i was back in cleveland and he said this this is like your you know this is perfect job for you right yeah
1: well it sounds like it as yeah the, so and you were working with computers working for NASA, maintaining computers that NASA was using? Is yeah, Na- right?
0: NASA had one supercomputer, one Cray. And uh, at at the end of the era, they had three supercomputers. Um, but, yeah, I was responsible for the maintenance of those, and I had uh, one guy working for me. And that, uh, that lasted, that was like... Um, nineteen eighty four and that lasted about ten years okay, so into the nineties end into the nineties
1: so were Cray supercomputers uh my computer history uh like where they were still in action in the nineties oh yeah. yeah yeah okay I guess it wasn't so uh again, just curiosity when did when was the end of the era for for Supercomputing, or maybe it hasn't ended yet. But those those Cray mainframes, those aren't part of the landscape anymore, are they?
0: They're still made. Really? Yeah. Cray Cray went through some uh, changes, and in and out of uh, they were purchased by um, Silicon Graphics. Okay. And then and then they branched out, made a new Cray computer company. And now they're, um, they are still making mainframes.
1: Interesting. I didn't realize that.
0: Yeah, it, it's so specialized that um, it's no longer um, it, as exciting for the public to hear about what's the fastest computer doing now, you know. I see. And uh, they still make, a, a, from what I understand, they make a very fast product. Okay. Uh, still in it interesting okay so uh just since we talked yesterday
1: i know a little bit of the story but you just mentioned that uh cray was purchased by silicon graphics um and
0: how how did that impact your your career it was strange um it it was um strange in in the uh respect that it didn't seem like i was ever a bona fide silicon graphics employee <laughs> oh right Because you were because you were the I import always yeah a former Cray yeah and um, and and that I didn't anticipate I, I thought we were all one big happy family but there was always that former Cray uh, label did that, it
1: feel like the silicon graphics folks felt like they were superior
0: I I don't know I don't know uh, if it was a superior thing or just a um we were here first okay you know you'll get your due but we were here first type of vibe i guess um it <laughs> the uh, the SGI SGI was their initials um the SGI that i hired on with or, or got taken over by was quite different than the SGI of a few years later, just a few years later. Um,
1: right, because I watched a documentary about the history of Silicon Graphics, and for those of you who are listening, if you don't know much about this, uh, Silicon Graphics is the company that essentially provided the platform that, uh, if I remember right, um, like the original Jurassic Park and a lot of the early entertainment-based graphics work uh, it provided the technology infrastructure that made computer animation possible. Like the, the all the work that Pixar and Disney is doing these days is built on the shoulders of the foundation that Silicon Graphics, the computer company did early on. And if I remember the documentary correctly, and you, I'm sure you, you're an expert here so you can correct me on this if, if I'm wrong, but that they were an industrial computing company that really sort of changed their their mission and their overall way of seeing how they fit within the landscape at some point and they went from being really in an an industrial company to having a focus on this type of imaging that became
0: right. really important in entertainment they um they had a uh, a pretty good central processing unit okay but they concentrated on making a proprietary graphics engine to go along with it, and became the go-to company for high-end graphics, like w- would be required for a movie. Um, Cray was in that, tried that a little bit, but Cray uh, Cray computers didn't lend themselves. To that type of uh, interaction, mostly because you didn't hook up to a cray as a graph with a graphical interface, whereas the SGI equipment had the big monitors that uh, were color monitors that you could uh, manipulate your manipulate your pictures so it was and because it was proprietary and nobody else had that stuff. They charged quite a bit for it and uh made a lot of money. Yeah. And mm-hmm. I think SGI got full of themselves when they decided they were going to buy Cray, <laughs> add that to their uh, resume and um and my my thought when that happened when they bought us uh my thought was that we were going to be the high end Computing system of the SGI line, and that SGI would be below oh, the okay. Cray's, yeah, and there would be the graphical stuff and the high high performance scientific computing stuff above that. But that's not really what happened. Yeah. Um it it became obvious that SGI had bought Cray to get Cray's customers. Oh, interesting. And convert them. To high-end SGI equipment and almost phase out the Cray stuff. So, when um, when the conversion when I converted over to SGI when when that finally took place, I didn't work on Cray equipment hardly at all after that. It was all SGI equipment.
1: How so? So SGI acquired Cray, Mm -hmm. and you remained as a Cray employee f- for some time, it sounds like, but then you... Like, Short period of time, okay. mon- you know, months. Okay. And then they brought you into the mothership, so to speak. Yeah. <laughs> okay. And even after that, though, you felt like there was still a little bit of a pecking order between...
0: Right. Yeah. Because yeah. there was the established SGI people that hired on to SGI maybe a few years, only a few years before, maybe even months before. Yeah. But, but, um, there were four of us in the Cleveland area that were with Cray that were moved over, and um it it was always former Cray and the uh, s g i people and although we all got along together there uh, you know, if I were to say, boy, I would love to have um uh, little tykes as my customer, you know, and no, 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 that's Mark's. You know, mm. that's, that's his, you know, the, you're going to take what we give you basically.
1: So did, uh, did you feel like there was sort of a culture clash or?
0: That too. Yeah. Um, SGI w- was a younger company. Okay. SGI, um, Cray had been around, Seymour Cray started Cray Research and actually, Seymour Cray started Control Data. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. So I've been working on Seymour Cray's designs uh, of his computers since the 70s. You know, okay. That, that was a continuum. I just kind of followed Seymour Cray through these <laughs> different companies. Okay. So SGI was established in the 80s, and, and Cray and CDC before that was from the 60s. So there was a uh, almost a 20 year difference in the, in in the ages of the employees. Okay. So when we got into SGI, it was party town. I mean it, it was really okay. different compared to the the to the straight-laced laid-back uh, cray people. Uh the SGI people were like crazy wild. Uh, I mean it was just way different. Yeah. And everything was very colorful because it was a graphics company. And they gave you things. They, they gave you t-shirts and watches. I mean, everybody had a Tag Hoyer watch on. I said, what is that all about? Oh, that was our gift this Christmas, you know. <laughs> I went, wow, you know, <laughs> what a company. Yeah. And um, so we were really excited about joining up, but um, but it was still a little bit strange.
1: I think there's a certain arrogance that youth brings and it's, it's tough because part of it is true. And part of it is hubris, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, like, mm-hmm. like the energy that you can bring when you're young, it is an asset, right? It sure. is like, it, it is an edge. And, um, but also, you know, there's folly in unbridled, <laughs> you know, right. Uh, all of that just by the nature of the relationship or the dynamic you, uh, you have to, you are forced into a role of sort of assuming the old guard, uh, conservative, you know, um, perspective on things, you know, and then, and, and suddenly you're in this company that by comparison is sort of run by kids, you know, that have a different mindset. Yeah. In comparison. Right. And, um, they have a, they have a different mindset and a different way of doing things, and uh, you know, I wasn't there, but I've, I've been around a little while, and I'm guessing they 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 felt like they had proved that the way that they did things
0: was it was working is working, <laughs> yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah, and that gives you a, a confidence or even an arrogance, you know, that yeah. your way is the right way.
0: Yeah. Well, that kind of came to a head on one of our get-togethers. We had a um, uh, an SGI. Regional get together at a hotel in uh, I think Sandusky and the Detroit people and the Cleveland people and I don't know if Pittsburgh was there or not probably, but um, people from all around the area went to this hotel for meetings and and things for for a couple of days. Yeah, and the first night it was just like wildness with carrying on and drinking and. Singing and hanging out and and jumping in the pool and at midnight, at midnight. <laughs> and and the cray people were it, it was jaw dropping to you know oh my God, what is happening <laughs> with this company you know yeah what are they all what are they all about but right. they were all having a good time with each other <laughs> right and um and there were consequences to be paid after that meeting, and things changed. As a result of that night, I wasn't the oldest person from Cray that was there, and some of the older people were even more ab- appalled and yeah. um, complained, and then there was an investigation, and, and that was a milestone in, in how things happened after, after that at SGI.
1: So things got out of control, and then that got addressed at a certain point, right. it sounds like.
0: If it was all SGI people, I'm sure they wouldn't have said a word. <laughs> oh, interesting. But the Cray people being uh, confronted, I guess you could say, with that um, for the first time. Right. It was like, for some people, it was too much. It was like, I don't want to be part of this. I was willing to, to let it go because it didn't bother me that much. But uh, I could I could see that some of the actions of some of the people were borderline uh, for a company get together. Right. Uh, so that uh, that changed SGI's vibe for interesting forever. So you were at
1: SGI, and it was this sort of interesting mix of cultures and approaches and personalities. It sounds like. So where did that? ultimately go, and you're not still working for SGI, so nope. obviously um, life
0: took you somewhere else eventually. In the global scheme of things, uh, computers kept getting faster and smaller, and the um, multi-million dollar mainframe computers were being replaced by multi-thousand dollar smaller computers that could almost do the same thing, but to the customers, it almost didn't matter. It was good enough. It was good enough, mm-hmm. right. And and once that good enough computer was being manufactured, it spelled the end of the big mainframes. But by that time, I had uh, gotten into an area of SGI called SGI Federal. Because of my clearance uh, background, going all the way back to NSA, uh, my ability to get a top-secret clearance was important so they put me in this SGI federal program where I was given customers that had secure sites and I was involved with the F-16 flight simulation uh, computers and that was exciting in and of itself Uh, being part of a small part of the uh, bigger SGI um, allowed me to uh, concentrate on a few customers and um, certain types of machinery that were used in the in the simulators so i was able to um, specialize become an expert in that type of thing and i like that and uh, still had to take stuff apart which is good <laughs> right <laughs> still had to had to tear printed circuit boards out and, and all that but um the uh i had some travel to do because uh these Air Force bases where the systems were at were all over the world and got a chance to go to Germany, and that was, that was fun. And uh, a couple places around the country. and um, that, um, But that program kept shrinking. Everything kept shrinking. SGI kept getting smaller. Uh, they had by that time spun off Cray, got, got, rid, of got rid of the of shell of Cray, and that, and they went off and did their own thing. Um, and, uh, one by one we started getting laid off. Mm -hmm. Um, so, um, I was one of the last to be laid off. And, um, when that happened, I had to reinvent myself. You'd had a trajectory
1: in computers ever since leaving Ford and and the accident and and all of that. You, you know, you went to school, you were involved with, with computer maintenance essentially Mm -hmm. for a long, long time and it sounded like that eventually kind of the changes in in the technology and the um industry ultimately led you to kind of a dead end in that particular area computers didn't need the maintenance the kind of maintenance that you were specialized right.
0: in certainly not the kind and um uh, it needed a different style of maintenance and sometimes our expertise was was uh, uh you know irreplaceable uh, When you know as much as we knew about computer systems and how they're all hooked up and everything, the smaller systems became easier to fix. But if they had a bad problem, you still needed someone with our expertise to Mm -hmm. figure it out. Yeah. Um, So we were really looked at as assets until it got to the point where um, almost anybody could fix these little machines right and they were talking about giving the repair and giving the maintenance over to the customers right training the customers to fix their own machines which meant we were out of jobs
1: right the the way that you fix a lot of things today is so different than it used to be where you know all the components are so inexpensive that there's no you know, fixing components doesn't have value like it used to when you can just swap in a new part and see if that works. And a lot of times it does, you know, and it's faster and cheaper. And so why, you know, why try to go and track down every...
0: Yeah, when when I first got started in 76, you had to track down the failing transistor and replace it. Right in the whole supercomputer. You had to find that one transistor that was, now there's a billion transistors on a chip. If right. any one of them fails, you change the chip.
1: Right, you replace a billion transistors. It's right, you
0: change a billion <laughs> of them because one of them is bad. And, and it's cheaper. Um, it became a joke at SGI with the customers. No matter what the computer was failing with. Problem with the ethernet, change the motherboard. Problem with printer, change the motherboard. Problem <laughs> with memory, change the motherboard. Right. Getting CPU errors, change the motherboard. <laughs> it, it, Everything was on the motherboard, so that was the yeah. only thing you could do. And I think that's still essentially true. Yeah.
1: I mean, like, I'm recording this to a Mac laptop, and, uh, you know, I've had problems occasionally. They're really good computers, by and large, but I did have a logic board go bad, but when they say the logic board went bad, like what does that even actually mean? Like s- something was wrong somewhere. So they replaced the logic board, which sounds like, you know, some huge problem, but it could have been, they just didn't like, that's just the easiest way to fix the problem for them. <laughs> right.
0: Yeah. Right. And, and if you, if you actually could track down the problem to the spot that, uh, it was occurring where the problem was happening it's a micros- microscopic spot on a integrated circuit right that either opened or shorted and there's no way to all you could do is look at it under a microscope you couldn't do it right. you couldn't it. fix it yeah <laughs> right so it's the same repair no matter what right which is get a new one essentially plug in the new one yeah
1: so you got laid off from uh from SGI. In two thousand
0: five. So what'd that feel like? Well, I knew it was coming. I I, I yeah. could have told you ten years before, you know, when when uh, when SGI bought Cray, it seemed like this was the final So hurrah. it wasn't a surprise. So it wasn't a big surprise and, and I would I would tell people that I'm gonna do something completely different. You know, I if if and when I get laid off, I'm I'm gonna wait for it. Play it out as long as possible, but I'll I'll just do something completely different.
1: What was it like, sort of knowing that that was gonna that that was inevitable? Was there not part of you that just sort of wanted to, to leave on your own terms and do something new, uh, rather than just sort of waiting for that to play out?
0: Yes, and um, in the final months, it was so obvious that I began uh, I began having employment talks with Lockheed Martin okay which is a company that i would work with with the F16 flight simulators Right, and they were the customer so the customer offered me a job oh interesting and they said when you know when cra- uh, when sgi lets you go you next monday show up here pick up where you left off and that was that was fantastic and the problem was that SGI needed me for one more trip to Germany because their replacement guy for me hadn't gotten his clearance yet. Okay. And they needed me to go back to the, to the Air Force base there. And so it was a two-week stint. Okay. I went for two weeks, came back, went back to uh, Lockheed and said, okay, I'm done with SGI for good now. I'm ready to start, and they said, I'm sorry, we don't have that opening for you anymore. SGI told us that they had hired you back. Oh, interesting. And I said, yeah, for two weeks, and they said, we thought it was for good. Oh, wow. And I went, no. So I got nailed, and that was that. was that. uh um, all I could say was, no, oh, goodbye. Wow. So, yeah, I tried to stay in the in the computer field. I thought I had it, and my own company screwed me over, basically. Wow. That, so, that must not have felt great. No, no, that was a horrible week. <laughs> because it was a, a highest high. You know, going back to Germany was exciting and, right. and being needed and being yeah. wanted, you know. Yeah. And then coming back, and then it's just, nope, you don't have a job. What did you do from there? Like, how did you... I had a couple of minor jobs with computer. I found out that there was a, a company that would do computer terminal re uh, relocations. So I got a few jobs out of that, moving computer terminals from one floor to another in a government building in Cleveland. Um, I tried to get... Uh, a full-time job at another company that um we couldn't come to terms because the the uh, ca- uh the uh salary was so low i mean it was a, a third or less than what i had been making right and um that that was silly to take a job like that and the final job that i i thought about doing was like eight bucks an hour and, oh wow and and you what had, year was this and this is uh, in 05 oh okay okay 2005
1: and 8 bucks an hour in 2005 is not no, uh professional wage
0: no. <laughs> no not a <laughs> no not after you were making what I was making doing the other stuff yeah so yeah it it was it was uh an, an insult so um i tried different things i tried making hobbies into my uh, work, you know, trying to make money from hobbies. I tried watch making, watch repair. That didn't, that didn't work out well because it, there's just no money in putting batteries in people's watches. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> that was eight bucks a battery. Right. So <laughs> <laughs> couldn't get away from that. Um, and, um, What ultimately happened was making uh, a business out of something I had done to my own car, and that was recoloring leather. Hmm. Okay. So um, I had purchased an old British Rolls-Royce in 1998. Okay. And um, I had recolored the leather in it. And people that saw it thought, that they would like their car to look that that good, and so they asked who who did it, and they asked if I would do it, and I said no. I, you know, at that time in '98, I had a job, and I said no. I I just do this for fun, you know. But in 2005, knowing that there was a was a a demand for people to recolor high-end car leather, I uh, started a business. Huh, interesting. Doing that. And from my ties with the Rolls Royce Owners Club, I was able to hook up with a couple of local Rolls Royce businesses that where I got my first You jobs. got
1: referrals essentially or jobs from
0: Right. Okay. Almost every car that they had in their shop, somebody wanted me to do something. Huh. So I went from one car in two thousand five to six different customers in two thousand six. Okay. To fifteen different customers in two thousand seven where I had to get my own shop. Okay,
1: so in two did you so in '07 you you got your own shop? Yeah, I and see. And it
0: was it was close to the other two businesses, so we all shared, uh, we all shared customers and and work. So that uh, that's how I got set up in in Berea. So it's sort of come full circle back to cars.
1: You started in cars started with engines in my wallet (laughs) yeah and then you had a long detour into computing and then you came back to to doing work in this case uh high-end cars doing doing detail and
0: interior work interior leather recoloring yeah Yeah. and uh it turned into a uh, refinishing and preservation business okay uh, initially, it was just people who had worn out leather that wanted it to look better, okay, but that got other people's interest who had older cars that needed uh rejuvenation of the leather to people going uh to people who had very old cars. So uh, the longer I had the business, the older the cars got. Interesting. Until okay. I fin- I finally got one customer with a 1904 car mm. that uh, that I worked on, and word got out, and and I've never had to really advertise. Interesting. It, it was it was that yeah, people are looking for that kind of work. If this turned into
1: your to your career and your way to put food on the table, sounds like there was money in it. At a certain point,
0: yeah. Initially, no, mm-hmm. and I didn't know how to charge. Okay. And I was actually um, afraid to charge too much, right? Or apologetic. <laughs> yeah. Um, and uh, the uh, the epiphany of that came um, when I did a customer car, and I I decided to charge him for the all the time and effort that I put into the car instead of the amount that I told him I was going to charge him. <laughs> okay. So it was like $2,000 over what I told him it was going to be, and he naturally had a fit. And it was yeah. at that point that he gave me some advice. He says, I have businesses. I know what it's like to try to make enough money to make ends meet. He said, you do the type of quality work that people would pay 10 times what I'm paying you. Oh, really? And when I heard that, I said, okay, that's what I'm going to have to do. Not go 10 times, but go more. Yeah. And, um, and after that it became, uh, a much better, much more profitable business. And, um, uh, and I lowered my price for him. I gave okay. him the original price, so gotcha. I lost money on him. But the next, uh, from then on, it uh, I took his advice, and uh, that worked. I, up to that point, I was afraid to ask for more money. But that I found out that if you knock out a few people who won't pay it, you'll gain the people who will.
1: Right, because you, you're you're sort of wasting your time doing work. Right, And, you you know, if you can cut that out, then you have more capacity to do the work you really should be doing. It's interesting because what you're talking about, so many people involved with film uh, have a similar, like everybody, like if they start their own business making videos or whatever, um, you know, I've talked to students who as part of coursework they had to sort of put together a bid or a quote for doing a job and they were like charging $500 or something to do like a video that should have cost $5,000, you know, <laughs> and, and um, I think it's a very common thing. And it, I would say that it's not unique to creative people, but it's definitely like knowing how to value something that there isn't easy close Uh, comparison for like what you're doing is very specialized right right and so you know it's not like there's another shop like yours just down the street where you can check and see what they're charging to do the same services that you're offering
0: that's right yeah
1: and and there actually is more of that I would say in film and video production but it requires a sort of certain amount of self-confidence to just say this is what my work is worth
0: right yeah and that's uh, that's basically what I lacked initially. Yeah, because I I looked at what I was doing as being okay. I wasn't looking at it from a customer standpoint. W- who would have seen other people's work, and then sees yours right. and goes, "This is it," but you don't know that, <laughs> right? Because they're jumping up and down inside, but. And and you're telling them, I'll give it to you for this. And they're going, oh, wow, is this great. You know, this is the best (laughs) I've seen. And it's only this much money. Right, right. So it it took a while to to get to that point. Although that
1: probably did help grow your business at first. Like the word of mouth of people saying, showing the work they got and saying, oh, and it was so reasonably priced. But it sounds like it didn't hurt you when you, it, it probably got you some of the business you just didn't need to have in a In a sense, if people who can't really
0: afford it need it done uh yeah um and in this type of business, and I'm sure this is this is the same in many different kinds of businesses where if you try to price yourself reasonable, you get the people who want it for even less than that. Mm-hmm. Yes. And they are sometimes the worst customers. Right. The the customers that I've had that have paid the highest amount because of having a lot of work done or having complicated stuff done, they never complain. Right. And that was a revelation. That was an eye-opening thing. and um, And that is something that... You can't be too arrogant um you can't you have to deliver and you have to deliver what you promise but uh if you can do that, then you can't afford to say this is what I want for my work, for my time, and if you don't want it at that price, i'm sorry
1: yeah and and that's okay right right like
0: i it's not personal, but be, this is what I need right. to make <laughs> you want me to do it for less. And I know that you would complain about every step of the way. Right. <laughs> and uh, so that that was a, a life lesson for sure. When I got rid of the shop last year, people were still calling in that. And I'll take some small jobs now. But I made sure that I had uh, telephone numbers of people that I could send these potential customers or my old customers. You know, what am I going to do? They say, right. And then I say, well, here, you know, go to this shop. They'll pick up where I left off, something like that. And they, they like that. They like that idea. Okay. So,
1: um, I think we're getting, we're finally getting to the part of the story that starts involving filmmaking.
0: Yeah. Because it, it had to do with the shop. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. How did,
1: how did the work that you're doing with cars ultimately sort of bridge over into, work with cars in film
0: in my line of work cars are usually totally apart and in process or together for a short period of time or gone right because they're done i i didn't have a business where there were cars sitting around that you could jump in and drive away at any time Um, so in um october of uh 2011 I got a call from Mandy uh, Mandy wells at the time who was the transportation captain for the old-fashioned film and she was looking for a initially a bentley or some kind of uh, high-end car to take the place of the car that had uh, pulled out of the film who had been who had promised to be in it but Decided to be out of it, um, and and what I had was a, a a 1952 Rolls Royce Silver Wraith, which is an old style r- Rolls with the bustle back and the big grill and the uh, old styling, big fenders on it, and the big headlights, and and uh, I just happened to have that car finished. It had gotten finished the day before. It was unreal. Um, and uh, although this customer had been waiting a long time for this car, um, being that it was October, he was amb- ambivalent about getting it back and trying to drive it. He was basically going to get it back in, in, in Chicago and, and uh, park it. So anyhow, I called the customer up. I, I told Mandy, I said, I have one car, but I got to check with the customer. Called him up and said, um, your car is ready. We're ready to put it on the truck, but I got a call from a movie company that wants to use your car in a movie. How would you like your car to be a movie car? (laughs) And he said, I would love that. Mm -hmm. I said, well, I'll have to keep it for six weeks, but um, I will uh, ship it to you at the end of the film. And uh, so he gave the okay. And as a result, the car got checked out a lot because I had to do a lot of driving to and from the sets mm. and on the sets. Mm. So it took sometimes an hour and ten minutes to get to the to the, location. to the locations. Locations yeah. before I did all the driving. Yeah, but yeah. Uh, um, I became the the car handler for that uh, that car. It's a stick shift, right hand drive, English car. Right. So the actor uh, Joe. Bonamico, he he did not feel comfortable driving it. Nobody felt comfortable driving it, so I ended up doing all of the uh, all of the driving on the highway in that, uh, with one exception, I think. So uh, Joe was okay with driving it thirty feet, <laughs> right. and then um, I would I would reset it for him. But uh, that was the first experience. Uh, I think I was on set for six days of the filming and um and got uh the uh behind the scenes look at how films were made and I, I was just amazed with uh with everything i, I was really starstruck by <laughs> by all of the uh activity so i really enjoyed that and um and that was going to be a one of one you know one experience uh talk about it to my grandkids type of thing right and um and it was until early 2016, so a good five years went by. And the film, and, and Old Fashioned, came out and, and everything, but uh, I still didn't think that I would ever be in films again mm-hmm. until early 2016 when my daughter sent me a, um, I guess it was an Internet thing or maybe a Facebook thing about um, drivers needed for Fast and Furious 8. Okay, yeah. And uh, there was an audition involved. Okay. And she said, why don't you, you know, you like to drive. Why don't you see if you could get into Fast and Furious 8? And at first I said, no. They also wanted a car. They they also wanted you to have your own car. And um, so I agreed. I filled out this little questionnaire, which was, your name, <laughs> what kind of car do you have, what color is it, <laughs> and mm-hmm. um, have you had any film experience, and any anything else. So um, I had put in that I had a 2016 uh, Focus, Ford Focus, it was dark blue, so it was the right color. Yeah, they it don't like certain colors. They yeah. don't like white, they don't like red. Yes. And, um, the, uh, and I had experience driving in old-fashioned, and uh, I also had experience in my drag racing career, which spanned about nine years while I was doing the computer stuff. I had, gotcha. a, I had a drag racing car, too. Anyhow, I sent that in. I got a response back almost immediately saying, be at, uh, be at the shopping mall parking lot uh, next week. We're going to have an audition. And um, went there had to drive in formation with other cars while the stunt driver weaved through us. And we had to reset to certain spots and show that we could do that. We, you know, had to uh, keep our distances and keep our speeds and all all that stuff. At any rate, after the uh, driving audition, I went to check out, and they said, uh, we like what we see. We're going to use you. And I got into Fast and Furious Eight, and that was uh, another six uh, days on on set, driving um, background, while the uh, stunt drivers were driving around us. Right. So that was exciting. We had our own stunt director. To there was twenty of us doing the background, and that that was quite a quite a different experience from old fashioned being the yeah. only car. <laughs> right. To to now being uh, driving with others and uh, right and that was uh that was really wild did they have you on a radio or something yes. okay everybody had a radio in the car uh same radio that the old-fashioned yeah. crew had yeah, yeah same type standard yeah yeah my experience with old-fashioned worked out because uh you know i had that radio and i knew what to do with it right and, and all that and Th- that was exciting because we worked with this uh, stunt director named Bill Young. Bill Young went back to Bullet. He did Bullet uh, back in 69. Oh, wow. He okay. knew everybody. It was interesting to listen to. And uh, we, um, because we were under Bill's wing, um, we got a chance to uh, meet some of the stunt people like Jay Lynch. And his daughter, and and we got to talk to people, and, mm. and it was an exciting inroad to uh, to that uh, part of the that part of the filmmaking. Uh, so that that was in 2016. Then uh, nothing happened until the next year, 2017. We uh, got uh, called by uh, Angela Bohm's casting agency saying that. Uh, there was a um, call for high-end cars in a new okay. film being filmed in Detroit, and since I had a Rolls Royce, old Rolls Royce, it had the right year, and and it was a high-end car. I, I decided I would apply for that, um, and they they accepted the Rolls uh, right off the bat as a uh, as a movie car. Uh, but they also said they needed drivers, too. Mm, so mm-hmm. my experience with uh, Fast and Furious got me into this uh, Detroit City project, it was called, which turned into, in the end, White Boy Rick. I see. So I, d- I did background driving for that. Uh, and although I drove my car in some scenes, the the roles got into some scenes, but they were never used. So oh, interesting. the car didn't get in the the final cut, but um I did get some money for driving it and and got money for driving the the background cars um they provided those um and in addition to that at the same time um acts of violence with Bruce Willis was being filmed in downtown Cleveland a mm. r- real quick uh thing, and I got involved with that got asked to I thought I was going to be driving. But what it ended up being is just parking my car and sitting in my car in one of the scenes. And okay. Uh, <laughs> so that was that was a big deal. But that scene ended up in the film, and you could see me in the car. You okay. You could see see the car. Um, yeah. So that w- that was.
1: Um, was that your roles or a different th- car?
0: That was the the. This one. Oh, the the uh, Ford. The Ford Focus. Yeah. yeah. So gotcha. It, it's been in two movies. That's why it says uh, two movies on the list. Yeah.
1: Yep. Yeah, you can't see us here, but we're sitting out here in front of George's house looking into his driveway at his at his uh his Ford Focus and right inside his garage is his Rolls. So <laughs> Yeah.
0: And both of them have uh, both of them are semi-famous.
1: <laughs> yeah. They've made appearances. And, but that's
0: that's kind of how things have gone up till now. Um after my experience with four different films, in each one, there were people that I met un- in old fashion.
1: Oh, interesting.
0: Yeah, in Acts of Violence, uh, Stephen Campanella was in that uh okay. as a producer, and and uh, Brandon Tilka was okay. in that. Okay. Okay. And um, and people I've met um, or become Facebook friends with, they. Um, I, it turns out that they're involved in different things too. Whether they let you know or not, you run into them. So, right, um, I'm I'm finding it very comfortable now, to go to a movie set in Cleveland because there's a good chance I'll know somebody. Right, and and that's a good feeling. Yeah, and, and I didn't, I I kind of didn't expect that. Yeah, part of it,
1: the filmmaking industry, especially when a, within a certain market, but even. You know, across the whole country that, you know, if you work enough, you, you are going to keep running into people that, you know, which is an interesting thing, which I think says something about the, I mean, yeah, there are quite a few people that work in film, but it's still a small enough community that if you know a number of people there, you're going to, you're, you're going to definitely have friends in
0: common and, and things yeah. like that. And it, it's very much like that in the high end automotive Uh, Okay. circles. Interesting. Um, It doesn't take long before people start asking you who, you know. Right. And and when you tell them that, you know, the same people they know, it's like the bond. Yes. It's like, okay, you're one of us. (laughs)
1: Yes. (laughs) What are some of your um, memories or highlight experiences
0: from uh, car
1: work in the films?
0: With Old Fashioned, my favorite memory of that was having uh, Brian Fowler, the uh, cinematographer, filming from the front seat with Elizabeth, um, Elizabeth Roberts in the back seat. Um, he's filming her doing her lines as I'm driving her through the city. And um, I, that was just, for, for my first experience in films, to have the 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 star in the back seat and driving her around it was just like ultimate uh the the ultimate good feeling yeah because uh, yeah. you were running lines with her too right yeah and she I was helping her with her with her lines and we were looking at each other in the rearview mirror which I thought was <laughs> kind of funny you know given mm-hmm. the the eyebrows and things uh um uh, that yeah that that was just Fantastic. I haven't told her that, but uh, one of these days I'll have the opportunity to tell her that was the high water mark. That that was fantastic. I really enjoyed that. Hmm. Yeah. I also enjoyed um, with um, like Fast and Furious. I enjoyed driving with the uh, the big boys, the the big uh, stunt drivers. I I enjoyed that. Like I felt like I was making a difference. I was yeah. you know, making the film better, you know, because of what I was doing. I don't know if that is true or not, but I felt that way. That was uh, yeah. one of those great feelings. And uh, with, um, uh, with White Boy Rick, um, I, I made an impression on the first day, which didn't make a whole lot of sense until months later, but I made an impression on one of the directors. What happened was he started using me uh, in certain uh, situations. By name, he would okay. say, "Okay, I, w- I want George to do this." Okay. And I want, and then he'd call me over and say, "Okay, drive this way. You know, I want you to do this for this scene." And uh, I didn't realize until almost after the film was done until a wrap, uh, that it was because he could trust me to do what he wanted me to do right and that he saw something in me that even I wasn't seeing you know which uh, that that trust and that uh, uh, that ability you know translates into like w- what we're talking about more work you know? yeah because they parked a lot of the guys interesting. Uh, in, in favor of having me do something.
1: It's uh, I think what you're, what you just described is something that plays out in so many instances in, in filmmaking, but just in life too, actually like what you just said reminds me of a story. When I was a, when I was a teenager, my dad was a TV reporter, a, a TV news reporter. And, um, he had a news car, you know, a company owned vehicle that all of his camera gear and stuff went in and, uh, he would pay me to detail his car. So it was always a big wreck, was, <laughs> you know, a mess and you know, I'd take everything out and I'd vacuum everything out and wash it and, and get it looking good and, and maybe even wax it, you know, really try to get it, you know, put back you together really, really nicely and um and when i got the first job that i had that was not something like that that was actually like an hourly job doing some work um it was on a maintenance crew but it also took care of vehicles and one day the the boss sent me out to wash a van and so i just sort of did my thing mm-hmm. and later he came back to look at it and he walked around the whole thing, and he looked inside, and then he looked at me. Mm. He said, you've done this before. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah.
1: And it never occurred to me whether I was doing a good job or not. I was just doing right. it, you know. And at that moment, I realized, oh, I, I did something different, apparently, that was good. Right, And I think that, you know, anybody who's who's listening, I think they're it doesn't always feel like people notice and they don't always notice actually, to be totally honest. But, but, um, when you take particular interest in doing something well or doing something right, or just even if you're not thinking of it in those terms, you're doing your, your due diligence, your best job to actually do to meet the objectives that are in front of you. People will eventually notice. Right. And, And you know, they saw something in you that that you were sort of blind to maybe at a certain level but all of the experience all the life experience and passion for vehicles and all of that stuff just translated into you being able to do what needed
0: to be done at a higher level than other people it um yes and and when i think back on on the different um uh, on the different locations and the different situations and all that stuff. Um yeah, it's it's um it's always it seems to me it's always trust. It always has something to do with with uh, how much they uh how much trust they want to put into you. And and people give me their their pride and joy cars for me to tear it apart <laughs> and m- make it better they're hoping i make it better but they can see others uh, other things that i've done and say i'm pretty sure he's going to do it you know better right and um uh, and i'll get it back in a in a better state so yeah it it's um i i i employed some some kids um while uh, while i had the shop and i always told them that um the, the you can promise anything you want but you better be able to deliver it and, and don't just say yeah I can do that you have to have a plan you have to know that you can do this thing and uh, if you can't or if you run into trouble have someone that you can uh, a mentor or an expert or someone you can fall back on to help you get over that hump and continue in the same direction uh, You know, in the same direction. I I couldn't do everything when I first started. I had to have a lot of help, yeah, and a lot of a lot of um, a lot of phone calls, yeah, and and a lot of hands on by other people. But um, yeah, once you get to a certain level, you're noticed and you become the go to person for that uh, that operation, whatever it is. Yeah. One thing
1: you hear a lot, I think when people give advice to filmmakers and so on, you hear things like, um, you know, fake it till you make it and things like that. And I do think there's a certain way of looking at that that's valid and that you have to sort of assume that you have the agency in the world to accomplish things and that you can't be afraid to try things, you know, experience is one of the best teachers. And if, if you aren't willing to try something until you have experience, then you're never going to get any experience. But at the same time, I, you know, it's frustrating when you work with somebody who's trying to fake it till they make it. And so they're not willing to admit that they don't know how to do <laughs> something, you know? And so I think there's a, there's a balance there. You know, you need to, you need to be willing to speak up and say, I don't know how to do this if you don't but also you can't be you can't just wait for your hand to be held all the time either so it's i don't know there's an interesting tension between those two things i think in in life and in work
0: oh yeah i i've got a lot of stories like that along those lines um <clears throat> when um when i first uh when i first started out i was only doing leather recoloring and it didn't take long before someone wanted me to to redo their woodwork which yeah. I had never done never done to that level you know mm-hmm. I had painted wood and, you know but yeah but not tried to make a a Rolls-Royce perfect woodwork set and um so I avoided the wood and told my customers I didn't do woodwork until one day when one of the other shops told me that I was going to be doing the woodwork in this one car that they had <laughs> Princess Grace of Monaco's Bentley.
1: <laughs> oh wow.
0: And and the shop owner had told the customer that George will do the woodwork. He's the best. <laughs> and I had never done it. <laughs> oh wow. <laughs> and the customer said, "I'm so glad I found George." <laughs> and and when um uh, when Chuck the shop owner told me that i said what am i gonna do he said you're gonna fix the woodwork and if you need any help dave will help you who was the shop painter so i had no experience but step by step dave and i got through that process i did as much as i could i'd show it to dave he'd say okay do this next and i would do that and and he helped uh Helped me get through that so that in, in the end, the woodwork looked great and um, the customer was happy and everything. And I learned how to do it. And then after that, I was on my own. Well,
1: it's interesting because you, um,
0: you had not done that
1: before, but it was the kind of thing, the, the kind of task that you had a proven track record of, you know, working with your hands, figuring out a process, paying attention to detail. Having craftsmanship in your work, although you had not done that specific thing, it, it was something I think within your range of expertise to be able to acquire.
0: Sure, it, it um, being the way I am, looking at something and trying to figure it out. I did that with the woodwork. I looked at it and tried to figure out. Well, how am I going to get the old stuff off? How am I going to? What do I have to do to repair it? What do I have to do to put the new stuff on? And that's what I didn't know was the process. But actually doing the different steps, anybody could do it. I could teach anybody how to do woodwork now because I know the steps. And I know know how to get from step to step, which is the most important thing. How you know, how do you know when you can move on? You've done enough at this level and then move on to the next step. And uh, that's what makes the difference between... A stellar, you know, concours job, and a an amateur. Everybody knows that you did that in your basement job, right?
1: You've come into the orbit of the filmmaking machine, if you will. What advice? And I would say, as somebody without a background in that, you know, what advice would you give to somebody? Uh, who is stepping onto a film set for the first time? As far as uh, skills for navigating that in a way that doesn't make them look silly or or anything like that.
0: Um, I've found that the uh, production assistant, the PA, is your best friend. Basically, that that's the person, in, in my opinion, that can that will talk to you without you having to worry about stepping on anybody's toes or speaking out of turn or being, you know, interrupting or whatever. Your your PA is is your friend. And um, you may befriend other people on set, some of the producers, directors, uh, actors, uh, you know, even. Um, but I, I wouldn't be in a hurry to try to uh, buddy up to... Actors, especially the big names, because they're they're busy in their heads. They're busy. I've been on set with McCona- Matthew McConaughey, and Bruce Willis, and um, a few others. Um, and it's um, it's enough to just make eye contact and say hi, you know. But uh, if you want to have a conversation, um, the the PA is the way to go in my opinion right off the bat you know right um the um the other thing is um not becoming infamous right off the bat (laughs) (laughs) right don't be that person that you know kicks over the light tower (laughs) or (laughs) you know leans on something they shouldn't or you know why are they in this shot you know type of thing um you 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 can't uh, as a beginner as an extra as a background you are just that and uh, you have to um, come to terms with that that you're not you know no matter how much experience and and uh, training and schooling you have your first time on a movie set you're you're the unless you get a, a speaking part right off the bat but um, uh, as a um, as an extra walk-on, whatever background, um, you just listen and watch and do what they say, because the um, the the direction, the people who direct, want to see the uh, the rest of the crew, uh, cast and crew, following direction and doing the same thing over and over and over again. You know, you don't want to embellish your part if you're supposed to walk from a to b right know, don't skip or whatever <laughs> yeah, right don't uh, you know bend over and pick up a coin or something. it's just when they tell you uh to do a certain thing there's a reason behind that and they want to be able to reproduce that same uh action over and over and over again and that's um that's what i got in my direction while driving they they wanted you to reset back to the original position within an inch or so and and do the same thing same thing over and over again and then they love you and um but if um if you're looking to uh, in in my opinion if you're looking to move up um in the ranks um it won't be long before you're going to be looking at uh, joining sag or uh, okay. d- uh, because otherwise um, you're going to be in in the background or as an extra forever because that is a one way street. Uh, once you're in SAG, you're you're making a career out of your uh, your filmmaking.
1: Yeah. Well, so you retired recently. Yes. Or more or less. You 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 sold your shop,
0: I assume. No. No, you haven't no, sold it. I couldn't even give it away. Oh, really? <laughs> And there's a good reason for that. My shop was really me. Okay. And it would be like a painter selling his painting business, you know, if a, a portrait painter, you know, selling a portrait business. Only that painter can paint like that. So um, it, it's that type of thing. Do you still own the building? No. So you sold the
1: building but didn't sell the business? Yeah,
0: actually I was renting that building. Um, yeah, I, I just rented it for the the years that I was there oh I see I, I thought about building my own building mm-hmm. which may have uh, saved money on, on in the long run but um, I could never decide on where to build it or or uh, how big or whatever and, and I could see that I was going to be retiring within a right. certain you know range of time within well 13 12 13 years and it wasn't worth buying or building. So, no, I just rented. I see. Um, my um, my logo is still on the building. The hmm. the landlord wanted to keep it that way. Oh, interesting. Yeah. My business name was GRK, so there's a GRK on the building, and, and people in the neighborhood all know that as the GRK building, so that's my legacy. Oh, okay. <laughs>
1: cool. So uh, do you have plans to, uh, are you wanting to be in more film uh in in more film productions with your with your automotive expertise and yeah. driving and so on?
0: Yes. Um I'm currently I'm at that fork in the road. I either continue doing background at minimum wage basically, or I look at um a stunt driver position. Okay. And join SAG. Um I'm talking with um uh, um I'm I've been talking lately with Ely Barda. Who's a stunt director of uh, many, many years—thirty years. 30 years. Um, he's been giving me advice, Interesting. Which, which is another thing that I uh, that I believe uh, the the more uh, the more favorable impressions you leave with people in the film industry, the more likely you'll be able to contact them later yeah, and sure. ask for help or ask for direction you know. And, um, and that's what I did with Ely. I met him on fast, uh, I met him on white boy, Rick and, uh, listened to his stories and was cordial and, and respectful of his time and space. And, uh, and, um, but we became Facebook friends afterwards and, and I was able to message him and ask him some questions, which ultimately got me his phone number. And now I can call him and, uh, you know, tell them what's going on, and and the same thing with Bill Young. I have his phone number also. Hmm. So um, that is so important to me in in any industry, but especially in the in the film industry. And that's to have people who will vouch for you, because when you just walk onto set, nobody knows you. And uh, but if you walk onto set and you know one of the higher ups, so to speak, or or can drop a name, that really helps, you know.
1: So if you don't mind me asking, what advice has been given to you as far as what
0: uh, direction to go? Um, Ely told me that um, in the stunt world, there are stunt drivers, and that's it. But there are different grades of stunt drivers. (laughs) I see. So some are, you know, some will run a car off a bridge and others will just try to avoid being hit. (laughs) Right. You know. Right. At my age, that's the guy I want to be. That's the kind of, yeah. (laughs) You're all stunt drivers and you're all working for uh, the daily um, rate, which is fantastic. Uh, I think it's 980 a day. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I believe. And um that's much better than $8 an hour doing background.
1: Yeah, yeah, like like it's adding a zero
0: <laughs> probably. Yeah. <laughs> much much better. So his advice was that there is a somewhat of a fast track to stunt driving. Hmm. And I'm and I'm um investigating that path. What I would like to do is um get into a uh, uh get into a situation where I can be called and go do one day of work, you know someplace I would travel for that, yeah, whereas now I'm waiting for a minimum wage job to show up in Cleveland, right, that I might work three months on, <laughs> like white boy Rick it was right. two and a half months, really, wow, yeah, yeah, so there was a lot of time invested in White boy Rick. Um, and a lot of driving and everything, whereas if I, you know, get into this other path and um, uh, it would be fewer days but more money and and fit in with my retirement really well, uh, really nicely. And uh, it was nice to hear Ely say that he would hire me right now. Okay, He said, if I had an opening, I would hire you, right? Because you have the skills and the experience that I would look for in someone to do the bee driving, I guess you could call it. Yes. That, that, yeah. The stunt driving that is, uh, you might get hit, but probably not. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. So that that's exciting to think about.
1: One of the big difficulties with a career in film is most people, certainly when you're a young person... Uh, you kind of need something to do while you're waiting for your bigger opportunities to uh-huh. come that's putting food on the table, but that thing needs to be flexible enough right. to let you go off and do the thing when you get the opportunity. And uh, and so it seems like it's a good sort of fit for, for where you're at, where you have time that you, you can use it to work, or you don't really totally have to if you don't want to also.
0: Right, I- there were a lot of days on White Boy Rick where they were looking for drivers that I couldn't afford to do it because I had a shop. Oh, I see. And yeah. I I was comfortable giving up two days of shop work to to drive. I see. But once it got to three or four in a week... You didn't have time. Was, yeah. It, it, I, I was... Um, I was not giving my own customers their due. Right. You know, right. I'm I'm off playing in movies yeah. when I'm not working on their car.
1: <laughs> so interesting. I was talking with Derek yesterday, and he introduced me to Derek Rimmel Spa from mm-hmm. Old Fashioned, uh, where we met. But he mentioned a phrase that I've never heard before, but is totally applicable to what you're saying and what we're talking about. People ask you, you doing this job for the meal or the real? (laughs) So like with the implication being, if you're doing it for the meal, you're doing it to put food on the table. And Mm -hmm. if you're doing it for the real, it's something you're passionate about that you're just interested in doing for its own sake. Mm -hmm. And maybe you're getting paid, but maybe you're doing it mostly for the real, you know.
0: That's the way it's been for me is the real. Yeah. So far. Yeah. Yeah because yeah it's not life changing money for sure sure <laughs> yeah. yeah but it's but it's so much fun and I, and even even on the days where mm-hmm. you stand around for 8 hours straight and then do something real small and then go home i even enjoy those days you know really? because there there's opportunities to do um to do other things or to network or one one of my favorite days on White Boy Rick was a day that we all went to a location to drive, but then they decided they weren't going to have us drive traffic. We weren't going to be any traffic. They didn't need any outside traffic for this building shot that they were doing inside. So we just stood around all day. <laughs> but the stunt people were there. Okay. And they were telling stories one, they couldn't tell stories fast enough. They they just going back and forth telling stories about different actors, about different situations, about um, well, wow, about Will uh, Bruce Willis, about uh, Ben Affleck. I mean, they they just were, we were in in stitches, and it was quite a bonding situation. Yeah. Uh, between ourselves and and the uh, people who have been in the movies for a long, long time, and uh, and and just made us feel good about being on set, you know, Yeah. that, that to me, um, you know, and no money in, in, uh, standing around talking. I mean, there's, you know, we got paid, but, uh, the whole idea was that networking is price.
1: As we're sort of bringing it sort of in, I guess, to some conclusion here. Um, first of all, it's been just super interesting to listen to your whole, Career story. I think you're probably one of the older folks that I've interviewed, and it has given you so much. Like, there's just so much more to talk about. You know, somebody at where you're at uh, versus somebody who's in their 20s or even 30s. You know, you just have this 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 long view of 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 and perspective on life and the way that it it took you in different places and the decisions you had to make at different times. But what, um, what advice, so there are a couple of ways I ask this question. One is um, what advice might you give a young person thinking of entering the job market right now as far as what, what ad, just what general advice you might give them. The other way I kind of ask that is like if you could go back in time and talk to your 18 or 22 or 24 year old self, like what advice would you have given yourself?
0: I I have employed young people in my shop but here's what I told all of my employees at least at one point during their employment. Yeah. And that is from from my observation everybody has some sort of superpower. Everybody has some sort of gift that they have that no one else can do or no one else can um, really reproduce in their place. So what a young person, in my opinion, needs to do is figure out what their superpower is Mm. and, um, and then capitalize on that. And you probably have... A built-in kryptonite. <laughs> oh, I see. Yeah, you probably have something inside that is stopping you from utilizing that superpower. So, yeah. so in answer to your question about myself, what would I have told? You? I my superpower is being able to uh, to self-teach. Okay. Yeah. I can I can look at something, figure it out on my own. And I might need a little bit of help from a book, but I'll find the book to tell me how something works or how it's supposed to, or whatever. I'll ask a question. I teach myself. I'm self-taught on almost everything I've done, including guitar, including um, painting, and all, all this other. Autodidactic. This that's oh, the word for that. Is that is that right? Yep. Okay. Well, that's. But my kryptonite was self self doubt. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah. And um, and. And I didn't have a whole lot of confidence in myself, mm. but um, once I got to that point where I realized that uh, I do have, I I do have abilities that nobody else has, and that I'm not just like everybody else, and I'm not just average. You know, there are some things where I am not average that I am, yeah. good, I am good at, and and that. It, it, it's not a boy, uh, it's not being boisterous. It's being uh, aware. Yeah. Saying, I know, you know, what I know what I can do. It's like, it's like a uh, guy uh, not knowing that he's handsome, mm. you know, mm-hmm. or thinking he's ugly or, yeah. you know, a girl that, that way. You, you get this uh, self. You're really beautiful, and everybody thinks you're beautiful, but you don't think so. Right. You have that superpower and don't know how to use it. And that's my advice. I've given that all all along. Figure out what you're good at, and then capitalize on that. Makes you think, doesn't it? It does. <laughs> it does.
1: Yeah. Wow. Well, it's been fantastic to to yeah, talk really with you. I really enjoyed this, David. Well, good. <laughs> I really good. have. Well, it's uh you know, and we've got uh, some of this on on tape here, but it's been great just getting to catch up with you as well and uh, spend time parked across from your house <laughs> and, uh, oh, geez. and <laughs> join Banging you for, into the for mic. dinner and so on. It's uh it's really been a treat. So well, yeah, my you. pleasure. The obvious sort of closing thought there is, uh, what is your superpower? What is it that you're good at that you? maybe don't even realize or maybe you do realize maybe you're more self-aware but oftentimes i think it's tough for us to be really self-aware if you're wondering how to figure that out talk to people around you maybe not just anybody i think you need to be careful in who you choose you need to choose people that believe in you at some level but also those that are willing to be honest with you and if you haven't already done that that's an important thing to do in life is figure out kind of who's in your corner who's got your back but is also willing to be honest with you about what they observe and what they think about things. So good luck to everybody uh, figuring out what their superpower is and maybe also figuring out what their kryptonite is. Uh, I guess I'm going to set off to do that now. So uh, until next time, I hope you'll join us for the next episode of Pictures Up.